Thank you, Debbie. Psalm 23 in your Bibles. Psalm 23. Our next psalm in the series we've started called The Savior in the Psalms. And we'll see here the goodness of our God once again. Psalm 23. As you know, on Memorial Day weekend, our minds are drawn to those who have served our country and those who have passed on before us who have served with honor. And uh, this weekend, especially tomorrow, we honor their memory. And so with a a, a weekend like Memorial Day, our our minds are drawn to the end of life. And then we think of the the passing of of Martha Smith yesterday. Our our minds are drawn once again to the, the end of life. And today we look at some of the most well-known and beloved words ever written. Psalm 23 is probably the most notable Old Testament scripture, probably the one that people would recognize the most. Even unbelievers, I think, and those who have never darkened the doors of a church have heard this passage, either probably in a movie or a literary work or having been to a funeral where it may have been read. And I think even a world that would denounce the Bible, not denounce God's word, still turns to maybe this passage at a time of loss and a time of heartache. I would say that a graveside reading of Psalm 23 is probably its most common usage, though that hasn't always been true. It is noted that before the Civil War, Psalm 23 was not often used in that way. It wasn't until about 1880 that the graveside usage of Psalm 23 really increased. And they say that might be as a result of a tribute written about Psalm 23 by the abolitionist minister Henry Ward Beecher. So you see Psalm 23 kind of take on maybe a life of its own in some ways. And I think the reason that Psalm 23 is often associated with the end of life and with that graveside uh, place It's probably because it is a comfort to us. What we see in Psalm 23 is confidence in God, our shepherd. Because David is not asking questions in Psalm 23, is he? He's not even praying a prayer. He's making declarative statements about God and his goodness. It's not wishful thinking. It's David says, here's some things that are true. I think that's why Psalm 23 is security for us in troubled times. But I want to draw attention to this too. It's not just for troubled times. J. Wilbur Chapman said this about Psalm 23, its truth is not for the end of life alone, but for every step of the journey from the point of regeneration to the moment of translation to the skies. Charles Spurgeon called it the pearl of the Psalms. He said, there is no psalm in which the absence of all doubt, misgiving, fear, and anxiety is so remarkable. Now, we don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm, but he definitely has personal experience with it. Could it have been that David wrote this psalm as a a young man, as a shepherd boy, on the hills outside of his his town of Bethlehem? He wrote this a thousand years before the angels would announce on those same hills that a shepherd, a good shepherd, had been born, potentially. He may have written it then. 
Or maybe he wrote it after sometimes, maybe later in life when he had experienced for himself the valley of the shadow of death. After God had taken him to the green pastures and the still waters of life for himself. We don't know exactly when he wrote it, but we do know this. 3,000 years have passed since this psalm was written, and it's still as fresh and as vibrant and inspiring as it was when David wrote it. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. First thing I want you to see this morning is that first phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The word for Lord is the Old Testament name for God. It might be, Lord might be in all caps in your Bible. If that's the case, it's referring to the fact that this name for God, this, this word Lord for God is the name Yahweh. It's the name that God gave to himself when he identified himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. Moses, remember, he said, who are you? Who do I tell the people that you are? And God said, tell them, I am who I am. In the Hebrew, we would say Yahweh. It shows the eternal self-existence of God. You know, there's never been a time when God has not been. I am who I am. He always, to say it in very bad English, he always am, right? He has always been. been. When David invokes this name of God, he's saying, if you notice here, the Lord, Yahweh, the I am, he invokes this name of God. He's saying that the supreme power of the universe, the eternal person, the eternal supreme person of the universe is my shepherd, in that he condescends and he comes down to have a relationship with someone lowly like David. So here in this one phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, we see the transcendence and greatness of God, and we also see the relational nature of God, that he would come down and take an interest in us. The Lord, the I am, is my shepherd. Now to be a shepherd in these days, to be called a shepherd, was not an exalted vocation. It wasn't something that was lifted up as some great title that everyone would run towards. The shepherd job was the grunt work job given to the youngest brother. That's why David was a shepherd. Remember when Samuel came to Jesse's household, and he starts looking through all the brothers, and he says, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, oh yeah, there's the youngest. He's out in the field with the sheep. Samuel says, bring him. It was that job you throw off to your younger siblings, right? We had that growing up when we were, when we were traveling. We'd go to church to church and, and set up the RV or tear down the RV. It was the stabilizing jacks because you had to kind of crawl under in there and get the little crank out and crank it, right? And it was the youngest brother, and it worked its whole way up. The youngest brother always got to do that, one, because he was low to the ground, and two, because nobody else wanted to do it. 
And so you throw that off on him. That's what this shepherd job was. The shepherds in, in this time period were not the ones that people gather around to hang on their every word. And we've got to hear what the shepherd has to say. And yet in Psalm 23, David refers to God, the Lord, the I am, as a shepherd. Something David would have personal experience with. Now, this is not the only time it happens. David, it's not out of the ordinary in Scripture for God to be referred to as a shepherd. In Isaiah 40, verse 11, it says this about God. It says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. Now, a psalmist in Psalm 95 and Psalm 100 could have been David, could have been another psalmist. He refers to God as a shepherd. In our scripture reading earlier from Ezekiel, we saw that imagery all over that passage, that God is a shepherd. And to call God a shepherd was a relationship that David was familiar with. David knew what it meant to be a shepherd. He knew what it took to take care of the sheep. And here's what's David, what David is saying when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. In essence, he's saying what I do for my sheep in an imperfect way is what God does for me in a perfect way. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, what does the shepherd do for his sheep? David would be familiar with what he does for his sheep. But what does God do for us, his sheep? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. First of all, he provides. He provides, I shall not want. I shall not lack for anything I need, in other words. And why is that true? Why do I not want? Why should I not want? Because the Lord is my shepherd. And the Lord always provides what I need. And I know some of you can attest to this verse probably more than I can, but it's been true even in the 34 years of my life. Psalm 37, 25, it says, I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. God provides for his sheep, and I will not want when he does that. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says not only does he provide, he says he guides. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He makes me, he leads me, he restores me, he leads me in the paths of righteousness. He guides my every step. Psalm 37 says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. You know what else I'm glad about? That he even orders the steps of the not so good men too. Because I fall into that category. He leads us, he guides us, he directs us. But don't miss this because I think we often run over this part. At the very end, he says, verse 2, verse 3, at the very end of verse 3, he says why he leads us. Why does he guide us? Why is he so good at taking us from one point in life to another? Here's the reason. He says, I do it for his name's sake. He leads us, he guides us, he directs us for his name's sake. The Net Bible says that it, words it this way, it says, for the sake of his reputation. God leads us and he is good to us for the sake of his reputation. Every time he cares for his sheep, every time he guides his sheep, he proves that he is a good shepherd and it is his reputation and his glory that increases. Because what if he did not guide his sheep? 
And what if he left them to do whatever they wanted to do? He would be like the bad shepherds we read about in Ezekiel 34, and his reputation would suffer. You know, the reputation of God should be our concern as well. Do you want to be led by God? Of course. Do you want to succeed in life? Sure. Do you want to make the right choices in life? Absolutely. But why? Why? I think sometimes we pray for God to lead us so that we can look good in life. God, lead me. God, guide me. Help me to be successful. Help me to make the right decisions so I don't look stupid. Help me to make the right decisions so that I, do the right, so that I get some credit. Help me to do this so I can be successful. That's not the reason. Not so we can make a name for ourselves. That would actually be misusing it and, and misusing the guidance of God. Don't capitalize on God's goodness for your own glory. Psalm 31.3 says, For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. You see the difference? Because when I pray and ask God to lead me sometimes, sometimes, honestly, we do it because I want to look successful. Lead me so I succeed. No, lead me and guide me so that your name is glorified. That's the reason he does it, for his name's sake. He always leads us for our good and for his glory. For our good and for his glory. Look at verse 4. He provides, he guides. Verse 4, he stays. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A good shepherd doesn't get scared and run leaving his sheep to fend for themselves. A good shepherd doesn't bask in the good times and abandon in the bad times. A good shepherd is with us. He remains with us, as David says, in the deepest valley and in the darkest shadows. And he says, because of that, we fear no evil. Don't miss this. We fear no evil, not because we are so strong, but because he is so strong. That's the reason we fear no evil. In verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. The next thing we see about how the shepherd cares for us is that he blesses. He blesses us with a prepared table and an anointed head. He treats us not as we deserve to be treated, but as he loves to treat us. Don't miss that in all of this. None of this is what we deserve. We deserve the opposite. But he blesses us and he treats us as he loves to treat us as a good shepherd. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He secures us. He secures us. Because he is faithful, his goodness to us is faithful. Notice the words, all the days of my life. Notice the word, forever. There is an eternality to his faithfulness to us. It keeps coming. It keeps coming to us. Psalm 118.29 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There's an eternity of God's goodness waiting for all those who call on him. 
Now, as we've briefly gone through this psalm, I want you to see that, that to David, not one of these blessings was up for debate. He wasn't saying, is this true? Or I wish this was true? No, he's saying it is true. It's not a question about God. It's a statement of fact regarding the shepherd's goodness and grace to us. Now, also don't miss this. If God is a shepherd, let me rephrase that. Since God is a shepherd, what does that make us? Sheep. And the psalmist tells us that several times, 95.7. He says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. But that's tough, isn't it? Because sheep struggle sometimes. Sheep stray Sheep disobey, we fight, we complain, we rebel. That's what was happening in Ezekiel 34. Would you go there? It's our scripture reading from earlier. In Ezekiel 34, God has appointed some of the sheep to be shepherds caring for Israel under God's care as the chief shepherd. But things were not going too well for them. Here in Ezekiel 34, we see this shepherd imagery all over the passage. God has appointed these under shepherds or, or leaders in Israel to guide his people. But you see in verses 1 through 6, these under shepherds have, have strayed from God and they've scattered the people. Verse 6 kind of summarizes it for us. He says, My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. He says these shepherds that he's put over his sheep have scattered the sheep. They've taken advantage of their positions. They've taken advantage of the people under them. They're not acting like God, the chief shepherd. Instead, they have abandoned their role as shepherd. And the sheep are scattered. The sheep are in peril because of it. They are actually harming the sheep. They're working as, as the opposite of God would, as God would. But look at verse 11 and following. For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. We see the heart of God in this passage. The heart of God is for his sheep. And when those he appointed to care for his sheep abdicate their responsibility, God steps in and he says that he himself will care for his sheep. But here's where God goes even a step further, because he doesn't just say, I'll care for my sheep. He says, I'm coming for my sheep. Look at verse 23. God says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. God says he will ultimately care for his sheep by sending them a good shepherd. Well, who will this shepherd be? I don't let that throw you in verse 23. 
In 23, he says, I'll establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them, my servant David. I'll let that throw you off because it can't be David. Ezekiel's prophecy is 400 years after David has come and gone. It's certainly not a contemporary with Ezekiel because nobody fulfills all that, all that that one shepherd will fulfill. And the contemporaries of Ezekiel are evil shepherds. So here we have a promise of the shepherd like David from the line of David, and it must refer to the greater David. As we've seen here recently in the Psalms, David serves as this figure or this type of the good shepherd who was to come. And here in Ezekiel, and really throughout, throughout a lot of scripture, the sheep are scattered, the, the appointed shepherds are sinful, and a good shepherd is needed. Well, guess, just guess, who shows up on the scene and proclaims himself to be the good shepherd? It's Christ himself, isn't it? Go to John chapter 10. Jesus arrives on the scene. John chapter 10, looking at verse 11. Here's a man who's in the line of David, who was a good shepherd. And he's in the likeness of God, who is the perfect shepherd. And in John 10, verse 11, Jesus claims to be the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He minces no words. He just comes out bluntly and he says it, I am the good shepherd. Now, don't miss this here because there is a doctrinal truth here that must be pointed out. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he says that he is what God is. Because we've seen that in Scripture so far. God is a shepherd to his people. Jesus comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. Herein lies a, an essential doctrinal theme in Scripture, and that is this. Jesus is God. What God claims to be, Jesus claims to be here. Jesus is full deity. He is equal with the Father and with the Spirit. He's not a lesser God. He didn't become God at some later point in time. No, He is God, and He always has been God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is what made the Jews so mad. Because what God is, what they knew God to be, Jesus comes and He says, I'm that. He claims to be what God is. Now, he does it here in John 10 by saying he's the good shepherd. He does it very pointedly just a couple chapters earlier in John 8. They go into this long discourse back and forth, Jesus and the Jewish leaders, back and forth about who he is and everything that's going on. And Jesus finally says in John 8, verse 58, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. That's what we would expect. He says before Abraham was, I am. So he's not only claiming eternality here, he's also claiming for himself the very name of God. God said, I am who I am. Jesus comes along and he says, I am. Jesus is God. And since Jesus is what God is, then it follows that Jesus does what God does. So God's grace and goodness that we saw in Psalm 23 
as a shepherd is Jesus's grace and goodness to us as a shepherd also. And we went through that list in Psalm 23 of what God does as our shepherd. What does Jesus do as a shepherd? He tells us. Look at John 10, verse 11. The first thing he tells us is something that for us today, he's already done. For them there listening that day, it was to come very shortly. But he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In verse 15, he says, as the father knows me, even so I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 17, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. In verses 17 and 18 specifically, we see the fact that no one killed Jesus. Instead, he gave his life willingly. It says there in the Gospels that he, he gave up the ghost. The ghost was not taken from him. In other words, he willingly died. Who does that? Who, who would do such a thing? What shepherd gives his life for his sheep? Now notice, Jesus doesn't just do it for, for the nice, you know, beautiful, pearly white sheep with the fluffy wool. But he does it for the sheep with the matted, dirty wool who, whose leg is caught in the crevice and they just bleat incessantly on and on and on. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ the shepherd died for us. He didn't die for us because we were nice, pearly, white, and soft. He died for us when we were a sinner. Matthew 9, verses 36 to 38, give us insight into the heart of Christ. Jesus is looking out over the crowds there, and it says he was moved with compassion when he saw the scattered crowds because they were like sheep with no shepherd. What are sheep with no shepherd? Almost dead. They're going to perish. They're in danger. And he looks at those people and he says his heart is moved with compassion as a shepherd for his sheep. And then here in John 10, it tells us that he lays down his own life for those scattered sheep. And by the shepherd's death, the door of salvation is open for all who will believe in Christ. And you know, he says that. Jump up just a couple verses, John 10, verse 9. Not only does he say, I'm the good shepherd, he also says, I am the door, verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep, but he's also the entrance to the sheepfold. Don't miss this. There is no other way in. There's no other way of entering besides through Christ. Say the door is open to all who call on Christ. The door is closed to any who try to get in another way. He's the door and he's the shepherd of the sheep. Now we see some similarities between John 10 and Psalm 23 in the next verses, verse 12 and 13. Jesus says he's giving his life for the sheep, but a hireling, verse 12, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about 
the sheep. Now he gives us this contrast. He's not describing himself. He's saying someone other than me will leave and they will, they will disappear when there's danger. Not me. I stay. The good shepherd stays with his sheep no matter what. He does not forsake them. And Jesus' shepherding here in John 10 is like God's shepherding in Psalm 23, 4. When he said, even in the darkest valley, even in the darkest shadows, he remains with us. He does not leave. He does not promise to erase the valley of the shadow of death, but he does promise to endure it with us. David would be a good one to represent this for us as he does in Psalm 23. Because if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David goes before King Saul and he says that while he was a shepherd, remember he's about to fight Goliath. And David says, hey, I can handle him. Because when I was a shepherd watching my father's sheep, a lion and a bear came. And David had to face that lion. He had to face that bear. He didn't run. He didn't leave his sheep to be, to be mauled by that lion and that bear. Now, the lion and the bear weren't removed. David did have to face them. But he was given the strength by God to do it, just like he was about to do with Goliath. In David's example of having the strength of God to fight the lion and the bear, his example also of staying with the sheep is a picture of Jesus always staying with us. When troubles come, he doesn't leave us. The valley of the shadow of death may be dark, it may be deep, but he's with you. And look at verse 14. We see another similarity here. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. Jesus knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. That's two sides of the same coin. That's a street that goes both ways, right? It is a personal, mutual relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. Our relationship with Jesus is not like watching TV. That's a one-way relationship, right? They get to say everything, and you yell at the TV, but they can't hear you, right? That's not our relationship with Christ. Our relationship with Christ is him sitting on the couch with us, that mutual relationship. You're communicating back and forth. He knows us. He knows every hair on our head. He knows every struggle and every joy we have. But it's not just that he knows us. It's that he has made himself knowable to us. That we can come and know who he is. How do we know Christ? Through his word. Christ is revealed through the word of God. That shows us the importance of the word of God. That without the word of God, we would not know Christ. I think it's an incredible thought that we can know someone personally who we have never met physically. We've never seen Jesus physically, but we can know him personally as if we have. And it's not just Jesus. It's not just somebody. It's God himself that we know. That's an incredible thought. See, Jesus can be known, and he wants to be known, and he shows us some of his heart. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's the heart of Christ. Don't miss this. 
Come and learn from me. Know me. Find rest in me. We don't just know of Christ. We know Christ. There's a huge difference. We know him by faith. We know him by experience too. You know, you can talk about the mercy of Jesus, but once you experience it, you know it. You can talk about trusting him, but when you cast all your cares on him, it's then that you know him. You know Christ. And then verse 27 of John 10, he says that because we know him, we follow him. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We follow someone that we know. And what we see in Jesus, the good shepherd in John 10, is what we saw in God, the shepherd in Psalm 23, a personal, mutual relationship. When David said, the Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd. There's a relationship there. He is our shepherd and we are his sheep, but even more so, he is my shepherd and I am his sheep. It's personal. It's a personal relationship. As a father knows his son, so he knows us. And as a son knows his father, so we know him. Song of Solomon 2.16 says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. See, our relationship with the shepherd is not some nebulous, ethereal thing. No, it's real. It's personal. The sixth verse of Amazing Grace, a verse we don't sing often, it says this, The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. He is my shepherd. I know him and he knows me. And then would you look at John 10 verses 28 to 30. As God did in, in Psalm 23, Christ the good shepherd here says he secures his sheep. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. The shepherd gives eternal life to his sheep and it's eternal life that is never to be taken away. We are doubly secure in the hand of Christ. It says, verse 28, it says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Verse 28. And then verse 29 says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. You are doubly secure in the hand of Christ and in the hand of God. It's as if you are in Christ's hand and Christ's hand is in God's hand. Or, or as like they have both their hands around us. You're not going anywhere. No one and nothing can take you out of that grip. And in Psalm 23, 6, we saw similar faithfulness by God. It said, goodness and mercy will follow me. How long? How long? All the days of my life. And then it said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? How long? Forever forever. What is declared about the shepherd of Psalm 23, the shepherd of John 10 delivers. 
Jesus is the good shepherd. He's my shepherd. We've covered a lot of ground this morning, and it's kind of hard to narrow this all down to one salient point, one takeaway, but I guess it would be this if I had to. What we see in Psalm 23 and John 10 is the goodness of God demonstrated in Christ. It's the goodness of God demonstrated in Christ. There's one other thing I didn't mention about Psalm 23, especially verse 6. It says that the goodness and mercy of God will follow us all the days of our life. The Hebrew word for follow also means to pursue. To be pursued, granted, to be pursued by something is usually negative, right? Something is chasing after you. Something is pursuing you. And David would understand this because several years of his life, he was pursued in a negative sense. King Saul and others were after him. Enemies were pursuing him. But he doesn't say that this time. He says, I'm being pursued this time, not in a negative sense, though there's a parallel. This time, the pursuit is a good thing. What is it that's chasing me? What is it that's nipping at my heels constantly all the days of my life? What is it that as as we are sheep and he is our shepherd, what is it that pursues us? The goodness and mercy of God follows us. It pursues after us. No matter where you go, the goodness and mercy of God chases you down to bless you. The goodness and mercy of God demonstrated in Christ, the good shepherd chases after us and follows us all the days of our life. That, my friend, is a fact. God is good. I'd like to close the the message this morning by asking you to join me in reciting Psalm 23. I've put it on the screen for us, if you would, just reminding ourselves of the goodness and grace of God. Would you read it with me? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray.